Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, welcome back to Odds Business Australia's only live streaming business and markets channel. Great to have your company as we kick off, uh, kick off the afternoon with the call. Ten stocks that you've suggested we take a look at. I put them to our expert panel for their adjudication. And today, Luke Winchester from Meriwether Capital joins us. Luke, good afternoon to you. How are you, mate? Hi, Koshi. How are you going? Scott Phillips from Motley Full getting some uh, <coughs> well-needed rain on the Southern Highlands there, are you, this morning? Oh. Uh, you've just on mute, Scott. Just unmute yourself. <laughs> there there go. you go. <laughs> Loud and clear. <laughs> oh, mate, Zoom Central, hey? We're not even using Zoom. I was going to say, mate, it's just started to rain here and it's going to rain for the next 10 straight days. So it never oh. rains at pause, quite literally. Uh, yep. But yes, mate, much needed rain and it'll green up the garden. Beautiful. Excellent. Excellent. All right, let's get <laughs> straight into it. I thought I'd take a, a look today as our stock of the day. Um, I picked Domino's holding its AGM after the bell yesterday afternoon with the company saying its network sales are up 8% so far in financial year 22. Looking ahead, despite some inflationary headwinds in 2022, the group has kept its three to five year out look unchanged. The brokers, though, not as optimistic. City trimming its uh, price target for the stock after Japanese sales took a hit as restrictions ease with forecasts for same-store sales to dip by around 1% in the first half. The brokers saying other headwinds include an earlier onset of food cost inflation in the second half. Now, Scott Phillips, uh, the market has absolutely um, taken a big stick to Domino's uh, share price today. In our series of stocks that you'd buy on a crash or a big pullback, Gaurav Sodhi from Intelligent Investor had Domino's as his stock and said it's the best run company listed on the stock exchange, which is a very big call. So is this an opportunity? Kashi, I reckon it probably is, quite honestly, mate. The challenge, I think, for Domino's is how big the crash needs to be before it gets to be stonkingly great value. Because let's face it, it wasn't cheap before. It needed a lot to go right. These numbers, by the way, this was a really decent or really good set of historical numbers. Even the outlook was pretty decent in terms of year-to-date sales. The challenge is they said, look, geographically, it's a bit lumpy. You've already talked about Japan. Um, And look, it was always going to come off. I think... Where I struggle with some of these businesses is honestly, if you honestly thought it was worth $145 not that long ago, none of what Domino's put out today should have surprised anybody really. I mean, if you were hyper, hyper, hyper bullish, maybe, but we all knew that things were going to go back somewhat towards normality. The fact that we're all at home ordering Domino's in because we couldn't go out, that was never going to continue unchanged forever. Uh, the growth numbers they've delivered actually are pretty good in the circumstances. So I'm, we have a, a buy recommendation on Domino's. I'm not going to change that. It's still a buy for me. Um, I, I think that the fall 
maybe, again, I don't do short-term price volatility, right? So I don't know what happens with the price from here. Maybe it goes down through something lower, 100 bucks, 80 bucks. Maybe it goes to 160 bucks. I don't know. Long-term, I think if you're buying at this price and they can continue the sort of aggregate compound growth they've delivered in so many jurisdictions right around the world now and more coming online most most years, um, I think Domino's, are, look, I wouldn't say it's the very best-run business, but it's definitely one of the top five or 10. Um, yeah. Gaurav's dead right. This is a really attractively-run business. they made every post a winner. I think if you, again, what I don't get is when people say, well, I loved it yesterday, I don't love it today. It's fundamentally the same business. Yes, the results were disappointing for some people, but I don't know what more they should have really expected. They expected more, I guess that was their expectations rather than the company that's at fault. Yep. Uh, Luke? Uh, yeah, look, you know I'd focus more on the smaller end of the market. And, and when I looked at Domino's today, I was I was honestly flabbergasted. I saw it got up to nearly $150 a share. Uh, unbelievable run. Uh, but I think that creates some of the problems you're seeing today. That that valuation got to some pretty you know eye-watering levels up above 70 times earnings. Um, Scott's right, and, and Gorab as well. You know, It's an extremely well-run business. And um, I, I don't think there was too much in the update today that you would look at and say was really unexpected. Uh, I think you know 4.3% same sort sales is very strong, particularly when you consider their cycling, um, I think it was 8.4% uh, last year. Um, you know, the commentary was a bit more muted, and I think you sort of uh, touched on it there, Koshi, Japan in particular, um, was uh, they, they noted it had started to cycle negative comps as they came out of reopening. And it might be just a little bit of a hint of, of what some of the other regions may face as, as that sort of reopening accelerates and, you know, people aren't forced to eat pizza at home and are able to sort of travel and experience the world. Um, I agree with Scott, though. Look, I, I'd probably say it's a hold for people today you know management came out reiterated those sort of medium-term targets and, and they still have that longer-term vision to double the business in the next 10 years which you know you consider where it is today um they, they you know they think there's a lot of runway to do that not just in australia but but also overseas where they've had a lot of success so i, I think scott's got the, the the right idea there that you know not much has changed from from yesterday to today um other than you know maybe a few people spooked by that valuation the outlook but but it, it's a good business and i think it's one you hold for that longer term yeah and uh you know you talk a lot of the experts and they say they've got a track record of actually delivering on their promises don't they which is oh, important they do. They with do. the executive team always expensive exactly yeah, Don, Don Mage, you know, I, I agree with Scott's point. I, I don't know if I'd say they're the best management team in the country, but, you know, they're, they're right up there. And, and, and the execution has been phenomenal. It's it's a, it's a fantastic brand as well. I, you know, I know Gaurav, when he comes on the show, likes to point out they make, you know, uh, more profit margin from their $5 pizza than, um, you know, Retail Food Group does through their $20 pizzas. It just goes to show just how efficient the business is. And, um, you know, yeah. it's much more than just a, a pizza business, that's for sure. Yeah. All right. Let's get into uh, the stocks that our viewers uh, want a view on. And um, Scott and Natasha want a view on EnviroSuite. It's uh, um, basically a, a wastewater um, uh, management business, isn't it? A sort of in the construction and airports and uh, mining industry. And um, they they have a, uh, an EVS water product that they uh, that apparently is selling pretty well. They've got recurring revenue of 42% over the September quarter. Uh, what do you think of EnviroSuite? Yeah, Kosh, you've done a really nice job of summarising it as always. So I can't add too much to that in terms of what the business does. The question for investors, I think, is where to from here. The challenge for EnviroSuite, they've lost money for the last six straight years. And so yeah. this is a business that you have to believe in the future 
if you're going to buy the shares. Uh, you know, it's, in some cases, funnily enough, it's easier to buy a loss-making small kind of you know clean tech company that has 70 times earnings Domino's pizzas, even though the other one's actually making some money. These guys are losing some money. Sometimes a little bit of profit actually makes things seem worse than no profit at all, which is kind of ironic and, and you know really shouldn't be the case. But a lot of investors will say, well, that's making money, but when it makes money, I'll be great. It's easier to say that some, sometimes than I'll buy Domino's at 70 times earnings. And, yeah. and maybe even fair enough. But you have to believe, as a senior buyer suite, is going to be able to come out the other side of this with some good numbers. It's a really attractive space to be in. We know that there is so much more time, effort, and money, most importantly, being thrown into environmental management in a whole lot of different ways, everything from the COP26 conference, of course, but even just locally, local council rules, state government rules, remediation of, of, of sites, uh, the management of discharge from sites, all that kind of stuff. It's a really big and growing area. And if you're looking for a growth business, particularly a small growth business, um, this is probably honestly one of the best places to look because if you can find a way to get hold of this, it's a really attractive place to be. The challenge, I think, for investors is, uh, as I said, you know, how long does it take to become profitable? How much profit can it make? And I'm not entirely sure I have a very strong handle on the answer to either of those questions. I know regular contributor Andrew Page, who also is my podcast co-host, by the way, but really likes EnviroSuite. And I'm, I'm loath to disagree with people who know much more about the company than I do. But from an investing perspective, I can't see myself coming to this sort of business with that track record of loss, unless you really believe there is some way of reasonably assessing future profitability, I just can't see it from here, Koshi, so I'm giving it a miss. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting sector, Scott, is that, and you've got, who else you got? You've got Fluence in there as well, if you like, in that, that sector, and what's that other one that um, uh, Lawrence Friedman was chair of? Foslock, was that? But got into all sorts of trouble with, uh, with some Chinese clients, so you've got a few groups in there, but none of them are making much, <laughs> much money. It, uh, sort of, it seems a great thematic, just finding the right company to get into. Um, Luke, what do you think? Yeah, look, my first comment I jotted down is it's a stock I want to like. I mean, it's a software business, mm. good recurring revenue in, the, in that ESG space, you know, uh, around the sort of odour detection, noise monitoring, uh, getting into the water stuff now. A lot of things to like. Um, but but I, I've sort of followed this business on and off for a while, and there's just always little red flags with it that, that keep me away. And, and to be honest, the biggest one, Koshi, I, I was going to bring this up, and, and, and you touched on it there. Um, and, EnviroSuite actually tried a, a bit of a Chinese expansion, and, and we're using the same people that Foslock did to do that. Ah. The, the same people behind that, that Chinese joint venture was ah. the same as Foslock. Foslock obviously got a bit further down that path before they realised something was wrong. Um, and VirusWeed, I think, were quite lucky and, and sort of the Foslock blow up, uh, I guess, helped them in a sense because that Chinese joint venture didn't really get off the ground before oh, VirusWeed pulled away. But it, it, it's a big red flag for me that, that I sort of went, you know, are, are you really doing your due diligence of the people you're involved with? And, and I do know that Chinese business is difficult in that sense. So that was always a red flag for me. But, you know, at, at a broader view, Scott's right. It's been a loss-making business for a very long time. Uh, it, it should be getting to some sort of scale now. They're about to, to cross 50 million annualized recurring revenue. And in my mind, for, for, for almost every tech business, that's a, that's a level where you should have scale over your revenue. If you're still a loss-making business at 50 mil uh, annualized recurring revenue, you need to have some really good um, sort of uh, revenue metrics around um, uh, low churn, um, good customer acquisition costs, things 
things like that mm. to justify still running at a loss. So I would love to see this business pivot towards um, not only profitability, but, but cash flow profitability as well. Um, they do have a good chunk of cash in the bank, so they probably can make it to that level if, if management are you know, um, sort of trying to focus on that sort of outcome without doing another raise. But it's been a very dilutive business over the last few years, 370 million shares to 1.2 billion over the last well, couple of years. Um, that's why you, know, you look at that share price chart before, 23 cents, and it hasn't really gone anywhere. The market cap's actually exploded because of all the extra shares on issue. It's not small, 270 mil business. Um, so for me, look, I, I would have it as an avoid as well. I, I think, you know, if, if you own the business, um, particularly for, like Scott mentioned, there's a, a lot of people who have done you know, much more detailed work into this than I have. You probably continue to own it. I, I think they're they're executing well to, to the plans they have in place. Um, but but for me, I, I couldn't say buy until a few of those things were cleaned up. And, yep. and most particularly, I think they swung towards profitability. Okay. All right, uh, Chris wants a view, Luke, on uh, Grain Corp, the big um, grain handling, basically a monopoly, isn't it, um, that transports and ships grain. Um, their results come out next week, so that will give us a good indication of it. Macquarie Group, I noticed, um, put out a, a new reporter. I think I got all of this remotely full as well, um, Scott. I think you, you guys did um, cover this in the last day or two um, as well. They put out a price mm-hmm. target of $7.32 on it. Uh, Luke, what do you reckon of uh, GrainCorp? Yeah, I had a look at GrainCorp and, and I found it interesting. They sort of commented on themselves and their businesses as an infrastructure asset. And the more you think about it, that, that's probably correct. I mean, um, you know, it's, it's, it's all of the, um, the the things they've put in place to transport grain, you know, not only around the country, but obviously overseas as well. Um, it's an asset that's very, very difficult to replicate. And, and so, um, you know, they, they sort of just clipped the ticket on, on grain production in Australia and some value added stuff around that as well. Um, look, the thing I, I, I took out of my, my look at GrainCorp, and, and bear in mind, you know, this is a, a mega cap that, that sort of it's, it's not really my space so I'm not I'm not looking at these sorts of businesses every day but they went through a heavy investment phase back in FY16 FY17 which was also a bit of a cyclical low for the business and so what you're seeing now is um, the the capex cycle has has really slowed down um, after that heavy investment a few years ago but the the actual business cycle is turning for them so they're getting some really good returns on capital as, as this cycle goes through which is often the opposite of what you see you see most um, sort of capital intensive businesses um, management teams want to really invest heavily when the times are good, when they have the, the money to do it. Um, so the businesses that are sort of, can sort of be counter-cyclical and invest when things don't look great, you know, you really get to reap those benefits on the other side. And, and, and they're doing that. They've now upgraded their, their profit guidance three times through the year, um, trading on about 10 to, to 12 times earnings, which looks optically cheap. But bear in mind, cyclical businesses, you, you, you may be paying peak earnings right now. Um, but, but, you know, when I looked at the presentation, management, their commitment to capital allocation seemed fantastic. Um, they're returning free cash back to shareholders after the, the um, United Malt Group spin-off. Um, I, I, would, I would have this as a buy as well. I, I think you have to obviously keep in mind it is a cyclical business. It's not one that you probably buy and hold for, for 10 or 20 years. Um, but, but where we are in the cycle and, and, and particularly their capital cycle as well, their capital uh, allocation cycle, I, I think it looks really good. Yeah. Scott, what do you think of Grain Corp? Is this, is this one of those stocks when you when you read about, hey, it's being a bumper wheat season or a bumper barley season, <laughs> Grain Corp's going to be uh, the big beneficiary of it? You know, like Luke was saying, is this a, a cyclical business and you're at peak cycle at the moment? 
yes, I think you're absolutely right, Gosh, That's exactly what this uh, Grain Court business is about, with possibly a slight change to its business model. Luke touched on it. I'm glad he did. Um, it was a really good point about the infrastructure business. This, they got, I can't remember, it might be water I think they're going to store. I can't remember now, but basically they've realized they have plenty of infrastructure assets right across the country, which is fantastic. And they can use those for whatever they want. And they're only real as a corporate entity. Other farmers will disagree, but as a corporate entity, their only real job is to make sure they have as much utilization of those facilities as literally possible. Mm. If they can keep them full, they're going to be charging for that. They're going to be making the margin on the way through. They can store pretty much anything in those facilities that, that obviously they can hold as appropriate for them and make some money. So that corporate strategy change was a really, really smart thing to do. And I'm really pleased to see them do it because it does remind you that while they might be a grain business primarily, and I'm sure they would still see themselves that way, there's no reason you can't use that infrastructure for more than just grain. And if you can, you can get paid for it. If you get paid for it, you make more money for shareholders. So it seems obvious, right? It's almost one of those, well, of course, yeah. that would be true. Thus far, they hadn't done that. They've been so fixated on, on their business. They came out of a farmer's cooperative, so it makes sense, right? But if you think about the way that can be used moving forward, the Grain Corp is in a, in a really good spot. Like Luke, I, I, I like the current level of earnings. I do sense they are at something of a peak. Though. I look back through some of the historical numbers. The, the most money they made uh, over the past 10-year period, um, they are still trading at 12 times. That was in 2017. That's 12 times those earnings. Now, it seems like, as Luke says, this year might be better than that, which is great. But to your question, Koshia, is it peak earnings? I think it's a very, very good chance that it is peak earnings. Now, peak can continue for a while. That's absolutely possible. And so we need to be mindful of that. And as I said before, I'm not going to predict whether the share price goes in the short term. It's possible. The market continues to love the fact that those silos remain full and grain crops making a pretty penny. That might happen for as long as there is bumper crops. And hopefully for our farmers, that's a very long time. But we've all been around long enough to know that these things tend to ebb and flow, unfortunately. And I do think we will look back at this and say, wow, wasn't 2021 a, a really unusually good year? Right. Uh, so I can't quite bring myself to have as much optimism as Luke, unfortunately. Uh, it will be a good year. I'm glad they're doing well for the farmers and for the shareholders of Grain Corp. But as I said, if you look back 10 years and the peak was less than what they're going to earn this year, unless you believe there is something structurally changed and improved in the business that is permanent, and that's a really, really high bar, I think. I'm going to have to call this one a sell, unfortunately. Okay. All right. Uh, Isaac wants a view, uh, Scott, on the BWP Trust, the real estate investment trust that um, holds all the Bunnings warehouses and mm. Bunnings stores. It does. The, the Bunnings sites, plus a few others, they're trying to diversify themselves away. Of course, they were known as the, the Bunnings Warehouse Property Trust once upon a time. They're now calling themselves the BWP Trust, trying to keep, have their cake and eat it too. They want to be associated with Bunnings, but not only Bunnings. That makes some sense. They're, they're, that bulky goods retail is a really attractive space for both landlords and for retailers. Bunnings is without doubt, in my mind, the very best retailer in the country, certainly the very best large retailer in the country. If it was listed separately, I do think it'd be worth more, frankly, than it's imputed to be worth as part of West Farmers. And again, that's probably logical given the complexity of the West Farmers business. Bunnings returns on capital, their growth numbers are phenomenal. They are just through the roof. It is out and out the best retailer in the country. Now, the good news for that, if you're a landlord, you're not going to have the close or the sites close very frequently. You're not going to have them walk away or or go out of business anytime soon. And that makes the BWP Trust a really high quality REIT for exactly that reason. You, you want an office REIT, you worry about people going to work. You're doing residential construction, house prices rise and fall, the economy ebbs and flows. It would take a lot, I think, for Australians to give up their bunnings and their sausage sandwiches. So it's a really high quality tenancy for most of it. It's still something like 80, 85%, I think, bunnings. So we can almost, almost call it 
uh, the old Bunnings Warehouse Property Trust. And I think from that perspective, it puts me in a really, really good place. The challenge, of course, is that Bunnings also know they're a great retailer and Bunnings can drive something of a, a hardish bargain when it comes to the rent they're paying. And that becomes slightly, not problematic, but it just means you're probably not going to get huge amounts of rental increases over time. If you have low quality or high turnover tenants, the, the, the trade-off for that is you can normally charge a higher rent. The problem with BWP for me is it's currently on 24 times earnings, about a 4.3% yield. That's a pretty decent yield, by the way, for a property trust and a high quality property trust. If you're in it for the income, I could absolutely see adding BWP to your income portfolio as a you know, a cornerstone position, 4.3% uh, is a lovely little yield. Not franked, of course, we have to remember that. Uh, so look, a really nice part of an income portfolio, but at 24 times earnings, very, very hard to imagine the circumstances in which it actually beats the market from here. If the market does this historical 10% a year over time, how does BWP get that sort of return? Internally, without raising more capital, without you know borrowing more money, it's very, very hard to see. So I can't say I like it as a market betting investment. So it can't be a buy for me in the context of our of our call yeah. portfolio and the core program. But I really do like it if you if you've got an income portfolio, particularly if you're overweight in the banks, which most income investors are. This is one you really should look at adding to your portfolio. Mm, okay, interesting, Luke. Yeah, look, Scott summed up the business quite well. Um, you know, I, I think it is probably one of the best defensive REITs on the ASX just because of the, how quality um, the Bunnings, you know, tenants are. Um, it, it's it's a yield play, essentially, um, as, as Scott pointed out. You know, um, earnings like uh, revenue to the business and distributable earnings that, that come through have been flat for about five years, which which makes sense. I mean, Bunnings, you know, are opening a store or two every year, but but you know, largely are capped out. And and um, BWP isn't the only owner of Bunnings properties either. So there's some other some other REITs that own uh, Bunnings uh, land. Um, from my point of view, 4.3%, it's a, it's a good yield. I would I would continue to hold the business if it was in my portfolio. If I didn't own it and I wanted some yield, I'd probably look elsewhere, to be honest. I, I think in, you know, there's a few other REITs that look interesting that maybe get you that north of 5%. Um, you know, some of the uh, more more riskier ones, I suppose, can even be upwards of 6%. Um, but as Scott pointed out, the big ones, well, no franking credits to, to, to keep in mind that. So it's just that, that straight 4.3% yield. And, and most income investors are in retirement phase and can take full advantage of those franking credits. So for me, purposes of the show it's a hold um I, I i probably wouldn't buy it even if i was an income investor i'll, I'll probably look to to some other reads that give, give you a better a bit of a better yield okay all right oscar wants a view uh luke on woolworths the big supermarket chain gave us a a trading update only uh, a week or two ago which the uh the market was a bit iffy over um not great increases in revenue and talking about cost pressures yeah, yeah, it was interesting actually going and looking at Woolworths today. It's, it's quite a clean business since the Endeavour spin-off. It's essentially yep. just the supermarkets business and uh, Big W, which even at an earnings level, Big W doesn't contribute much at all. So it's essentially just a supermarket business. It makes the Coles comparison actually a lot a lot cleaner. Um, you're right. Look, you know, 30 times earnings, good steady business, great defensive business. You know, it's one that um, has been a, a stalwart in people's portfolios for many, many years. Uh, the update the other day to me looked okay. You know, four four odd percent. Um, you know sales in that in that core supermarket segment um brad banducci the ceo did call out that that has been sort of lockdown assisted whenever they've seen regions go into lockdowns or restrictions uh, there's been a tick up because obviously people can't go out and, and eat, eat, eat out so there's more um more grocery spend um, i think what spooked the market was yeah some comments around inflation i think any time a business and, and you saw we touched on dominoes earlier anytime the inflation word gets thrown around now the market definitely gets spooked <laughs> um and his, his comments as well that uh you know the, the first quarter 
were up, they took them to the end of September. And there was just a throwaway, or not a throwaway line, but a sentence after that that said, um, you know, in the first uh, few weeks of October, sales had slowed, I think was the, the language there. So the market, again, whenever you have that vagueness, the market always gets a bit jittery and, and sometimes assumes the worst. Look, I, I have Woolworths as a hold. It's, like I said, about 30 times earnings. Um, Coles is about 23, so it's the premium there, which is deserved. I think Woolworths is a better business. And even if you look at the first quarter update, Woolworths was was stronger. Um, whether that premium should be that much or not, I, you know, maybe not sure. Coles, you know, whether it closes Woolworths pulling back or Coles going up, I don't know which way that would close. But um, I, I think it's a hold, uh, you know, a good defensive business. Um, mm. You know, uh, and, and I found it really interesting actually just reading their presentation, um, the, the measures they've put in place to protect their employees from COVID and and um, really drive the business and and and, um, and and help their employees and stakeholders through the period as well. I think it's um, you know, a very good business and, and an institution, um, not only in the market, but, but in Australia. So yeah. um, a hold for me, just on valuation. Uh, Scott? Yeah, I agree with Luke. It's a really high quality business. I, I much prefer it over Coles. It's a much better long-term track record. Uh, fell into a bit of a hole a few years ago now when it simply got ahead of itself and couldn't keep growing uh, and had to kind of reset. But it seems to have reset reasonably well. It's done a fantastic job right through COVID of dealing with the COVID crisis, moving to direct to boot, home delivery. Um, they've really not missed a beat. They've been building that kind of online presence for about 20 years now, but really got a chance to flex that muscle recently. It is going to be, I think it remain one of the, the higher quality businesses on the ASX, one of the more stable companies on the ASX. Now, don't forget the shares have doubled and halved more than, more than a few times through its corporate history. So even the most stable business can have really uh, volatile share price if the market gets particularly excited in one direction or another. And I agree with Luke, 30 times earnings for a business that's going to grow moderately at best is way over the odds. It's just not a not an attractive way to try and, again, make some money and beat the market. If you're looking for a, a you know, boring kind of stable portfolio, you want to have Woolworths in it, I wouldn't blame anyone for buying it just for the sheer sleep at night value of the business itself. Um, but I really don't think you can get market beating returns. I don't know how you would get market beating returns from here. You need some PE expansion from here just to get even close to that. And of course, such expansion is probably not necessary or, or, or not justified, I should say, if they still keep growing at these moderate rates. So really high quality business, love what they're doing. Um, have always been a, a big fan of the company, the brand, uh, the way it goes about doing its thing. Would love to buy it at a, at a cheaper price. I don't even think I'd go to Coles at 23 times earnings. That's how overvalued I think Woolies is. I think you want to buy these guys at maybe low yeah. 20s at the absolute most. So I'd, I'd give this one a miss. Yeah. Uh, if I owned it, would I sell it? Probably not, no. Uh, but I definitely wouldn't buy it. Oh, okay. So if you wanted, because I, I, I was going to ask you, a lot of people would have bought into Woolies ahead of the Endeavour split off to, um, to, to, to get dibs on Endeavour shares, capital return, yeah. all that sort of stuff. If you bought it for that, you've gone through the Endeavour split off, would you still hold it? <laughs> I, look, if you're aiming to beat the market, no, I don't think you can. I think this right. is the challenge when, you know, the, the whole recommendation for any of us tends to be one of those sit on the fence kind of ideas. Yeah. The question is, is this the best place for your money? Is it going to keep up with the market? I don't see it's going to, quite honestly, right. Koshi. So if there's no if there's no tax bill to pay, if there's no other reasons to hang on to the shares, there are just many better options elsewhere. In fact, if I'm right and it does lose to the market, you can simply buy an index ETF and do better. Um, right. So or, as always, keep your, okay. put your tax uh, <laughs> issues into, into the forefront. Make sure you diversify it as always. Ways, but broadly speaking, no, I, I don't think you'd, you'd hold it for the sake of it right. if it's not going to be a market beater. Okay. Uh, it was a very good throwaway line, almost like like a backhanded compliment. You know, <laughs> if, if you want better than a index ETF, well, then no. <laughs> yeah. 
that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah that's fair <laughs> enough, I reckon. That's really fair enough. Thanks. All right, um, Scott, Harry wants a view on Healthier. Now, we have lots of businesses listed on the stock exchange, which are, are roll-ups of a lot of small businesses. We've got insurance brokers. We've got dentists, all that sort of stuff. Healthier is a podiatry yep. and physiotherapy roll-up. Uh, it's just gone through a, a big capital raise to buy the Back in Motion Health Group, which is 64 physiotherapy clinics around Australia. Um, uh, they can... Some are good, some are bad in these roll-ups. Um, uh, how do these guys rate? I think the challenge, Koshi, and you're dead right. You've, again, you've done a great explanation. The challenge is, and you even seen with the, the back-in-motion acquisition, as you get bigger, and, and this... I, I, I'm loath to mention G8 education because that's not really badly. I don't want to necessarily link right. the two inextricably, but I will mention it because the challenge for all of these roll-ups is they're great when you're a small business. And if you, if you own two and you add one, you're adding 50%, which is great. When you add 200 and you add one, you're not even going to notice it on the bottom line. And so the challenge for roll-ups as they grow is the, the, the economics you buy in for during the early years of the roll-up simply don't exist at the end. And you've got to, as a business manager, if you're an executive of one of these businesses or a director, you've got to you've got to believe and run the business as if it's a two-stage operation. You have to grow, and you can do that by acquisition or organically or both. But then once you get to a certain size, you have to have prepared your company, your balance sheet, and frankly, the investor community to know that the way you should think about these businesses changes materially. Woolworths, to use that example, back in the early 80s, mate, I'm old enough to remember when Woolies and Coles between them had a market share that was less than 40%. Now the two of them have something like an 85% market share of dry grocery, Aldi, Costco, and, and the local guys have kind of the rest, um, and it differs by category. But during that growth, they weren't rolling up, but they were growing themselves, and they became very different businesses. So you can almost buy Woolies and Coles 20 years ago, 30 years ago, as, as growth businesses, as they were growing into the businesses they are today. The banks are the same, by the way. But again, you know, if you, if you own the banks over 30 years, you're used to these stunning returns that kind of just disappeared over the last decade because they got to maturity, and that's fine. They've done a great job, but you have to know the business is different. That's all a big preamble. Talk about healthier. I think it's too big now to really meaningfully benefit ongoing from right. that roll-up strategy. So the question is now, as an organic business, is it attractive enough? At 17 times earnings, 17 and a half times earnings, I don't know that it's super attractive. I have to say, it's you, these businesses don't scale particularly well, the actual the clinics themselves, because they're based on, yes, utilization, and maybe you can have a second or third practice room, but, but each podiatrist, each physiotherapist can only really deal with one patient at a time, almost by definition, literally by definition. And so they don't scale particularly well, even at a site level, once you've got those full. So there might be some efficiencies they can get out of the business. There might be another couple of tuck-ins they can do, or a really big acquisition maybe like the back in motion one to make a difference but at this point they really have to buy really big for that acquisition strategy to keep working you're now really not looking at it as a roll-up you're looking at it as a as a as a you know as steady as she goes business as usual operation and i just don't think you want to be paying that for this sort of business it's probably got more upside than woolies and it's cheaper than woolies so from that perspective <laughs> probably it's probably a better roi perspective I just don't know how this continues to deliver above average profit growth or can deliver above average profit growth, I should say, um, given the current level of profitability and the current PE, there doesn't seem a lot of upside in either, either angle. Okay. Lou? Um, look, Scott, 
uh, stole my notes, to be honest, Koshi. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly my thoughts. You know, these businesses they have a they have a finite life as as, as a growth business when you when you're growing by acquisition. And um, I, I will say to Harry, who sent in the question, um, you know, I, I've always been biased against these businesses. I, I just don't like them. They they live on an arbitrage between private market multiples and public market mm. multiples. But what what happens is over time, Scott's right. Those multiples just converge into one as the business slows and the market pays a lower multiple for the, the listed business, um, they require bigger and bigger acquisitions, which of course you're dealing now with more sophisticated people who own uh, larger networks of you know, stores, insurance brokers, physios, yeah. whatever the roll up is. And they want a higher multiple for their business as well. So as an example, you know, healthier now trades on about nine times um, EBITDA. That back in motion acquisition was only seven times EBITDA. So you're not even seeing that big accretion that they were getting in those early days of a, of a couple of years ago, where you were picking up some some people at sort of three or four times and plugging it into a nine or ten times uh, market multiple. So Scott's right. I think they're they're probably past the, the the point where you're at that peak acquisition led growth. Can they pivot now to to organic growth? Maybe. But the, the the track record of businesses on the ASX that have done that is, I think, quite small. Um, I, I think most of them do blow up. And, and Scott said he was loath to mention G8. It's it's you know and, and even ABC before that. But um, you know I I think it's a fair comparison in a sense mm. because that's often the the, the path these businesses yep. take as they reach maturity. The market realizes that that growth is is not there anymore. And you've also got a lot of teething issues. The, the main thing I don't I really don't like about these businesses is there's no real synergies beyond just corporate costs. If you, even if you look at their presentations they maintain the brands of the businesses they acquire so there's no synergies over marketing or promotion or um you know getting cross sells across your business they're all they're all fundamentally separate operating businesses just under one you know asx listed corporate banner so uh, i i would actually say it's a sell uh, yep. you know if, if it's your style maybe you could you could continue to hold it but for me like i said I, i've never liked these styles of businesses so it'd be a sell for me okay. personally all right let's recap the uh, first five stock stock of the day dominoes um a buy from from Scott um, and a hold from Luke. Enviro Suite, um, no, from both Grain Corp. Luke likes Grain Corp. Um, uh, Scott sees it as a sell. Uh, BWP Trust, uh, a no from both. If you're in it for um, income, then then hold it. Uh, Woolworths, a no from Scott, a hold from Luke. And uh, Healthier, a no from both, um, um, including a sell from Luke. Um, here on the call, we've been tracking our own fantasy portfolio since the 1st of July last year, thanks to Trade. Any stocks that get two thumbs up um, from our expert panel goes into the portfolio. If it comes up again and gets a buy or a hold, it stays in it. If it doesn't, it goes out. Um, so let's check how it's been performing. Last week up half a percent, four and a quarter percent for the month since the 1st of July this financial year up almost 8% since the first of since inception the 1st of July last year up 45.68%. Some of the stocks recently added uh, MedAdvisor, Seven West Media, Smart Parking, uh, the Vanguard Market Shares Index ETF and Alcidian. Um, some of the stocks removed A2 Milk, Crown, Star Pharma and PointsBet. Take a look at all the stocks and ETFs in the calls portfolio at osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. Um, let's uh, get into uh, the second five stocks. And Scott, uh, Kanish wants a view on Unity Group. 
uh, which basically is a big fiber NBM in infrastructure uh, organizations, isn't it? And um, one of its directors sort of got created by by ASIC a couple of weeks ago for uh, selling some stock in a different company that spooked the market for a little while. Uh, but what mm. do you think of Unity? Yeah, director concerns never play well with the market, Koshi, and in a market that kind of tends to jump at shadows from time to time, or maybe most of the time, probably no surprise. The base Unity business, though, separate to that, is actually a really solid business because it's in the fiber game, as you've already mentioned. It's kind of a, an effective duopoly partner, if you like, with the NBN proper. The good news for these guys is they lay the cable once and they effectively then make money on it thereafter. You might remember the, the, the good old days of telcos uh, back in the Vocus Communications and M2 Telecommunications days when those guys were both laying cable right around the country, different sides of the country, um, Amcom as well over in WA. Uh, when they were laying cable around the country, it was a really attractive business because you pay the costs up front of getting the cable in the ground and then you find a way to go and sell it. And generally speaking, once you start selling that cable piecemeal, the margins can be really, really high, even allowing for the uh, um, uh, depreciation or amortization of the cost involved in laying the cable in the first place. Super cash um, uh, disruptive or using in the short term, in the, in the early years, and super cash generating in the late, later years when there's mm -hmm. almost no maintenance required, but you keep selling the same asset. So it's a really attractive business. Um, one, of our, one of our team actually spoke with the union. They said they expected double earnings in the next five years, even without doing putting any more cable on the ground just because wow. they're going to start selling or continue to sell more and more of the cable they've already got. Now, it's 47 times earnings. So even if you double that earnings, you're still at 23 and a half times earnings. It's not necessarily a slam dunk in terms of the investment case from that perspective, but it goes to show, as I said, even without a single uh, you know, kilometre of additional cable laid, mm. they still expected to double profit because they were going to be able yeah. to sell access to that cable. It's like an to many annuity for the business, isn't it? It is a beautiful model. And again, the early days yeah. of, of Vocus, M2, Amcom, they all had the same kind of thing going on in different ways. M2 was more a, a, more a, a retailer, of course, but uh, Vocus and Amcom in particular, laying cable. It's a really attractive business, particularly if you can get it at the right spot. We talked about roll-up businesses. This is not in any way the same thing, but the timing of your analysis and buys is really, really important. If you can find a business like this when they're putting money out, not getting much in, when the you know the, the market misunderstands the time frame of, of that earnings flow, um, you can really get a bargain, and that was the case, as I said, with those other businesses. Unity, I think, is probably a buy right now. It's not obviously mm -hmm. cheap. The market knows what to expect. That's why it's trading at forty-seven times earnings currently. It you know the market doesn't doesn't forget past lessons very often, um, and it's learnt from from the Vocus experience. So it's a good business. It's a really cash generative business. The margins should be very good with precious little maintenance. Any incremental cable will also be really profitable in the out years. So, uh, you know, if they're only going to double double profit, I'd say it's still too expensive, but I expect they'll double profit on the current cable and add more after that. And that okay. makes it a buy for me. All right. Luke? Yeah, look, it's a really good business. I, I actually took a call with these guys a couple of years ago and, and, and they told me exactly what they wanted to do and they had the management team in place to do it. And, and of course, I didn't listen to them enough and never bought the stock. But um, they've executed perfectly. I, I think back then what sort of spooked me away was a lot of acquisitions, but they had a very clear plan and that was to essentially position themselves, like Scott said, just as, as a duopoly alongside the NBN. And effectively where they compete is the fact the NBN's a, you know, a government body uh, riddled with bureaucracy slow moving and, and unity is the exact opposite so they've been able to steal a lot of market share 
Um, the, the, the metrics around the business are fantastic, and, and Scott's right. I mean, even better, they they have developers partially fund the the, the um, laying of the fiber, so they don't even front up the, all that whole cost themselves. Um, the ongoing annuity to style revenue is fantastic, um, and, and normally I hate the use of EBITDA with capital heavy businesses, but but Scott, I was going to point this out, but Scott already has um, the ongoing maintenance is actually quite small for these guys. So so EBITDA essentially is their cash flow, which is is um, nice to see. It, it, it's expensive. That's that's obviously the main point, uh, and Scott was touching on it. 22 times um, sort of run rate EBITDA, which is sort of the, the EBITDA they did in uh, June and then, um, you know, times 12. I think the market is pricing in some M&A premium in this stock, and, and I think the transaction they point to right now is the Telstra Towers um, uh, deal that went through a few months ago at 28 times EBITDA. I think the market's looking at that and saying, look, you know, here's another infrastructure asset in that same telco space, um, you know, very minimal uh, ongoing capex, very cash generative. It's the perfect business for these superannuation style businesses, private equity style businesses that want to right. take away the, uh, the volatility of the market and just own, you know, know an asset like that so i think there's a bit of a premium like that in the stock i, I actually you know i same similar to scott i still come around with a buy i think that that premium mm-hmm. is there the business is so extremely well run their backlog is fantastic you can model out their revenue over the next few years with the backlog they provide you um, and those margins will only continue to, to grind higher as um you know the, the cable that's in the ground continues to get activated yeah. and used and that annuity revenue um you know uh, takes over the business so Still a buy for me, even at these okay. levels. All right, it's already in the calls portfolio. It stays there. Sort of reminds me of a tech version of APA. APA has the gas pipelines. They're just same pipelines, pump everyone's gas. This is just data and tech. Um, they're great yep. business models. Um, Charlie wants a view, Luke, on Next Science. This is a medical technology business uh, headquarters here in a Australia Research and Development in Florida in the US. Yeah, look, it's, it's not one I'd actually um, look too closely at, but it was interesting to come and have a look, um, you know, yesterday and this morning. It's, it's in that sort of wound care space, which we have a few listed on the ASX. It's it's, it's, it's interesting, actually. Um, so their, their main technology is called XBio, and, and uh, like a few of the businesses, like a Polynovo, uh, Aroa Biosurgery as well, they all do little sort of different things, but in that similar sort of space. Um, they're using that core technology across a range of different products, and, and of course, those different products are in different stages of their life cycle. Some are already in the market generating revenues, others still more early stage. Um, so it, it, it's difficult for me to sort of value these sorts of businesses, I must admit, but they do have some revenue coming in the door, which is nice. They did about uh, uh, 2.2 million revenue actually in the third quarter, about 6 mil mm-hmm. for the full year. So they're seeing some acceleration even as, as uh, particularly as US hospitals uh, open up for them. Uh, At the brief look that I took, a a couple of the uh, sort of orange flags that popped up for me, their main product is a a product called Experience. And they've actually got a couple of lawsuits against that product. The the first one is with their their main distributor, um, who is um, essentially claiming that they have the the global distribution rights for this product. And Next Science, I guess, is disputing that because they want to try and retain some of those rights themselves or or look to um, uh, provide the rights to other people in other geographies. Um, And then a key component 
competitor in the US has also sued them for false advertising around the, the sort of the efficacy of their products. So um, that could just be some stalling tactics or something like that. Of course, I haven't spoken to management about their opinions on that or, or even if they could say candidly, but it's not an uncommon tactic to use a lawsuit or some sort of legal action to slow a competitor down if, if they are sort of, um, you know, uh, potentially disrupting a, a core a core product that you have. Um, look, I, I, would, I would say it's a hold for anyone who does own it. Like, I, I would hope that if anyone's owned it, they've done a little bit more work than I have, obviously, into the product and the potential. It looks interesting. Um, at my brief look, I think there's another capital raise in the stock, which would always keep me away from buying it today. Right. About 10 mil cash in the bank, and at that cash burn, there's there's definitely one coming. It's just about when that is, and, and maybe management can time it with some news or, or a good result, and the, the share price might have a bit of a run before they're forced to dilute. But I would I would sit on the sidelines right now if I was looking at the stock. If I owned it, I would probably keep holding it. Like, like these biotechs, hopefully you've had a bit of a look at, at exactly what the product is, that market fit, um, and sort of backing that technology yep. um, at this stage of the business anyway. Scott? Yeah, looks done a really nice job of summarising, and, and it's funny and, and not not at all inappropriate that we spend more time talking about the possibility of capital raising and the lawsuit, than the actual products themselves, because that's kind of where these guys are at the moment, and not even necessarily through any fault of theirs. It's just it's it comes with the territory, as Luke says. You're in a business that is burning cash and burning cash and burning cash and burning cash, hope, hoping to try and find that jackpot win, right? And like all these companies, I think I say it almost every time we talk about med tech medical technology companies, we all hope they're right. We all hope these things are great new products that dramatically improve patient care, can get you know, wide, widespread adaptation and, and, and go on to change lives and really improve medical outcomes, right? That, that would be perfect. Uh, the challenge is, uh, of course, there are plenty of competitors, would-be competitors, and it's really, really difficult to know how to price the odds of success in this sort of environment. You can kind of take a, an absolute probability perspective and look at the size of markets and the size of uh, the, the relationship they have with other distributors. That's currently where that, at a, as they call their high-level strategies to sign up country-level distributorships for these products. And again, they seem like great ideas, right? If you can reduce infections, if you can prepare surgical sites uh, in, in a better way, a more effective way, uh, uh, you know, a safer way, that's that's a fantastic way to, to to go and make some money. We all hope they're successful. The problem is that there is going to be more shares issued. And as Luke said, when you're kind of relying on whether or not they can time it with an announcement or a share price spike for X, Y, or Z reason, it's very hard to know what price they might be able to issue those shares at, how much money they'll be able to raise, how long we have to wait for those profits to come in. If it sounds like I'm casting doubt, I absolutely am. Uh, as an investor, you need to have more, you, you either need to have a, a very, very good lottery style portfolio and hope you get desperately lucky. That's a very low probability way of trying to make a dollar though. Um, this is one you just, you can afford to wait. Yes, you know, if it's successful, this price will look really, really cheap. And you look and go, oh man, I had the chance to buy it. The problem is there's another 25 of those who look cheap right now and will go broke. And so you compare that and say, well, how do you choose the one or the two or the three? It's very, very hard to try and establish the odds and price your bets accordingly. And so in that case, you literally are best just to walk away and say, I'll leave it to somebody else. I'll keep an eye yeah. on it. Even when they get traction, preferably even when they become profitable, you're going to have plenty of time to make a lot of money off this one. Not as much as if you buy now, but a whole lot less risk as well. Okay. All right, uh, Scott, what a, Brett wants a view on, uh, on BrainChip. They're, uh, they're developing an artificial in, intelligence chip called the Akita chip, isn't it, that uh, gets super high pro- processing. Um, share prices been going up okay, but uh, uh, not much in revenue. 
No, and, and from med tech to just tech tech, and in a really, uh, you, you'll love this. And this is this is all legitimate, it's genuine. But but here's the here's how it's described. Um, they develop accelerated solutions for advanced artificial intelligence and machine learning. So two ticks there, with the primary focus on its Akita neuromorphic processor uh, for fast AI edge network for vision, audio, olfactory, and smart transducer applications. Right. And I can't even wade my way halfway through that, Koshi. <laughs> These guys are trying to, you know, this is this is again, it's it's lot of ticket technology that they're desperately trying to find a market for, a profitable market for. And these are this is the new race. That the race is absolutely for AI and machine learning expertise. And most importantly, it's one of those things that is tends to be um, it's a compound type activity. So if you can get to the front, you're more likely to stay at the front. So that's the race right now. So you can get there first, who can get there fastest. Who can stay at the front of this AI machine learning field? That that's that's the real idea. And if you can genuinely do AI well, we're all racing for exactly that. Quantum computing is not the same, but it's in the same kind of field. If you can get there first, biggest, fastest, learn most about it, you really are in, in a I won't say unbeatable position, but you're in a very, very, very envious position because it's one of those situations where the ability to get there first really makes you top of the pile. The problem is very, very hard to know whether Brainship is the company that's going to make it there first yeah. and in a way that is going to really catch on with the market. And this is the challenge. They will say, we've got this great technology. We really believe in it. We're trying to make it great, commercialize it, all that stuff. It is literally the AI equivalent of the conversation we were just having about next science, unfortunately. It's an $800 million market cap on my numbers. Um, it hasn't made a dollar yet. The share count is going through the roof. It is literally the, the the tech version of the of the medical companies we were just talking about, the biotechs and that kind of stuff. And you should treat it, in my view, the same way. Maybe it ends up finding a way to succeed. Maybe it doesn't, but it's not investable yep. for me. Luke? Yeah, I'll keep it brief. I mean, this is a sell. Um, you know, the way I think about these businesses quite quite genuinely is if, if this product really worked, it wouldn't be listed on the ASX. It's, it's just a simple way to think about this. Like, this is a field where the, some of the world's brightest minds and capital, you think about the venture capital industry over in Silicon Valley and the likes of Google, Apple, Microsoft, the people working on this sort of stuff. If this product was genuine, it would be found out and it would be bought and wouldn't be listed on the ASX. So it's a sell for me. Okay. All right. What about Serco? Uh, Luke, another technology business, but uh, this is a SaaS product for the travel um, industry. It's travel and expense booking and and management. Comes out of New Zealand, has uh, been put to me. Any tech company that comes out of New Zealand, you've got to have a look at because uh, they seem to do it pretty well. Mm. They, they punch above their weight in, in tech, that's for sure. Um, yeah, look, travel and expense management software, so obviously impacted heavily by COVID. Um, you'd, you'd expect to see that when you look at the numbers, like 50% decline in revenue. Um, looking at the software itself, it looks quite interesting. It's sort of like a back-end software for um, for, for uh, travel agents that helps them sort of plug in and do some expense management software and um, you know travel bookings. Um, so a good client list. They've uh, partnered with Booking.com, actually, for a bit of a white-label solution of theirs and are in the process of bringing some some clients across so you know i saw a lot of things to like as i was looking you know through the the presentation of, of the product and their solution and what they want to do uh, what sort of stopped me in my tracks is when i got to the valuation and, and this is a business um you know the, the, the share price is up there and you can see the strong run it's had and um, what the share price chart doesn't uh, display is there's also quite a large capital raise um you know during the year as they sort of needed cash in the door to um to get to, to get through the effects of COVID, so that market cap is is now extremely high, at about eight hundred mil market cap. Wow. 
pre-COVID, that annualised recurring revenue was only about $26 million. They think they can grow quite strongly. They've got an aspirational target of $100 million over the next few years. So, you know, even to get to their aspirational target, you're still talking about a revenue multiple that would put them, um, you know, right at the top range of, of some of these peers. So that's where I sort of, um, you know, hit the wall in my analysis. I thought the product looked really interesting, but but that valuation was hmm. steep. I, I think at best I could say a hold if you've got some really good conviction around the product and the partnerships they've got and um, the, the growth they've managed to achieve so far. Uh, I'd struggle to come and buy it at these levels, though, at, at that valuation. I, yep. You're banking a lot on that COVID recovery, not only going smoothly, but but probably them being able to take some significant market share and grow faster than what they would have as if COVID never happened. Um, so for me, at, right. at best, a hold. Scott? I'm going to agree with Luke outright, uh, and I'll keep this one brief as well because we are pushing up against some time at soon, or you'll tell us to hurry up, Koshi, so I'll, I'll yep. try and do that earlier. Um, <laughs> look, it, it's it's a really cool little business, great. Uh, what, I don't like to say New Zealand, so I'd like to say Australasian business, Koshi, one of our best Australasian tech businesses. Uh, it's a company that really is is doing some nice things. It's a really good niche. The problem is, as, as Luke's already said, not only was it only barely profitable a couple of years ago, three years ago, the last two have been really terrible. And the share price has recovered. It probably should have because the market probably did overreact to how bad things could be in the middle of COVID. The challenge is now they haven't yet made that money and yet the share price has made it most of the way back. And so you ask yourself, well, hang on, how sure am I about what the future might look? And, and as Luke says, it's an, it's an expensive option, even if it even if you believe you can hit that expected or, or management's own targeted uh, run rate. But from there and at this price, it feels like a lot. So the shares have probably grown back into what, something like what they deserved to be and the sell-off was probably too much. The money to be made was buying in the, amid the fear uh, yeah. and, and riding that wave rather than waiting for the fear to be over and then looking for value. So okay. uh, too expensive for me. I wouldn't sell it either. I think it's a hold. Okay. And uh, our final stop, we'll need to whip through this. Ellie wants a view on Boral, <laughs> the big uh, building products, construction materials company. Uh, was a bit of a dog on the market for a while. Then uh, Seven West Group, uh, got involved and shook things up and Ryan Stokes got on the board and have been flogging some of their assets, particularly in the US, Scott. I wouldn't bet against Ryan and Kerry Stokes, Goshi. So it's uh, it, no. it's worth thinking about that in terms of their interest in the business. In t- you know, as business people and as as strategic investors, they they've seen something they like very much, and and it's one of those situations. There was an old story, you know, you never want to be on the other side of a trade from Kerry Packer because you're probably getting a dud deal. Um, I don't know. I'd necessarily want to be on the side of a trade from Ryan and Kerry Stokes either for exactly the same sort of reasons. That being said, the shares are currently 14 times peak earnings, which are back in 2017, 18, um, 2018. And and again, the question, they made a loss last year. Okay, we all know why, understandable, no, no dramas there. But, you know, if it's that, if it's 40, and, and by the way, that peak earnings was higher than every year before or since. And so if that's the peak, not the average, and you're paying yeah. 14 times the peak earnings, there's a very good chance you're paying 18, 19, 20 times average earnings. Um, just too expensive for me in, a, in an industry that is pretty cyclical generally. I don't hate it. I'm glad the Stokes are involved. That gives them a better chance of success in my view than before that. Uh, but I don't know the price is attractive enough to make it market beating from here. Okay. Luke? Yeah, look, I, I agree. I think Scott's right. If, if if you put sort of seven group to the side for a second and just looked at Boral and, and what you're buying today and what you're paying for it, I would agree it's too expensive. And, and you've got some COVID impacts in there too. They called out, um, you know, uh, revenue down 1% in their AGM update. And, and uh, they did decline to give the exact number, but said EBIT was uh, worse than that. Um, so, you know, on, on, on the analysis of the business itself, I would say it's too expensive, good asset. And, and people had said that for a long time, that the Australian Boral uh, assets were quite strong and it was the, the stuff that, 
the buying spree they went on in the US that was really dragging the group down. So Seven's obviously come in and cleaned that up now. Where I guess the, um, I said, look at the borrow as an operating business for a second. Now overlay Seven as part of it. If you're saying, look, I want to back Seven Group who had a takeover offer for this business at $7.40 only a couple of months ago, um, you know, they wouldn't be wanting to buy this business unless they saw a margin of safety at that price. So they obviously think the business is worth substantially more than $7.40. And they now have uh, effectively control of the business. And, and as you said, Ryan Stokes is on the board. If someone said to me, look, I'm backing Seven Group more than I'm, I'm you know, looking at uh, Borrell's history and what they've been in the past, um, I'd, I'd probably have a tough time arguing with that. So it, it okay. probably depends on your reason for buying. Uh, I think if you're willing to, to back these guys and, and own Borrell because of Seven Group and what they can do, I think that's a reasonable case to make given that they wanted to pay $7.40 for it not long ago. Okay. All right. Luke Winchester from Merriweather Capital. Thanks for joining us. Good to see you, mate. Uh, Scott Phillips from Motley Fool. You can follow Scott on the Motley Fool website. And as he mentioned earlier, he has a podcast on the listener app, which uh, features (laughs) the... The, no, no, which features the Osbiz um, co-founder, Kylie Merritt, this week. So uh, very interesting reading, picking the uh, the brains of Kylie, and you may even get some karaoke thrown in as well. Uh, good to see you, mate. Thank you, guys. Thank you, buddy. Ta. See ya. Um, let's recap the final five stocks. Unity, which is already in the calls portfolio, um, still a buy from both Luke and Scott, so it stays in the portfolio. Uh, Next Sciences, uh, a no from Scott, a hold from uh, from Luke. Uh, Brainship, a sell from Luke, uh, and a no from Scott. Circo, a no from both, as is Boral. Uh, if you've got any stocks you'd like us to uh, put to our expert panels, put them in an email to call at osbiz.com.au or tweet us using the at Ausbiz TV handle. Uh, check out all the stocks in the Calls Fantasy portfolio, osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. <laughs>